Hey there, I'm Katie Bravo, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode's theme is Mothership. First up is a story about what not to expect when you're expecting by me, Katie Bravo. This is Unprepared. What do contractions feel like? I entered it into the Google search bar and ignored my yet-to-be-packed hospital bag. Despite 10 months of doctor's visits, four weeks of birthing classes, and an entire third trimester of being a walking optical illusion that could turn heads just by turning to my side, I was somehow still unprepared for this baby. Which is weird because I'm a person who likes to be prepared. I find making lists therapeutic. I make a game out of packing and repacking a suitcase prior to a trip. And for as long as I can remember, I have daydreamed of being a mom. Not the sleepless nights and the leaking milk out of your breasts at Chipotle, which does happen. <laughs> Although I would still take that. <laughs> because I wanted it all. I wanted to raise a tiny human. Which is why, just a couple months into dating the man who would be my husband, I was more than ready to have a baby. And three years later, he was too. <laughs> Although I come from a long line of unplanned pregnancies, hey mom, at 30 years old, I was historically the oldest woman in my family to attempt having children. And I didn't want to take any chances. I bought bulk packages of LH and HCG hormone strips. I downloaded period tracking apps. I added predicted ovulation dates to my husband's Google calendar. I had even begun drinking teas from a local herbalist and doing acupuncture once a week. But month after month, we tried. And month after month, we failed. And I know failed is not the right word, but it's exactly how you feel when all you want is a baby and all you get is a negative line on your overpriced pregnancy test. After about a year, I decided to see a fertility specialist. At our initial consult, she drew my blood, took an ultrasound of my ovaries, and scheduled me for a series of more invasive tests in the months to come. As I left her office and headed into work, I prepared myself mentally for the idea of in vitro fertilization. I was just starting to warm up to the idea of having twins. I figured it'd be like getting two Snickers bars for the price of one out of a vending machine when I got a call at my desk. It was the fertility specialist. Kathleen, we just got your blood test results, and I don't think we can help you. What? You're already pregnant. At just two weeks past conception, my child already had great comedic timing. <laughs> and now she was doing it again, two weeks before her due date and one week before our very planned, very scheduled C-section. I closed the laptop and texted my husband. It's probably just Braxton Hicks. Contrary to what we thought before getting pregnant, Braxton Hicks, not a country singer, <laughs> but rather a form of false labor. It's your body preparing you for the real deal. 
or so I kept telling myself 12 hours later as we drove to the hospital in the middle of the night. Behind the wheel, my husband was cool and collected and very accepting of the fact that I was actually in labor. I tried to follow suit, but I couldn't shake the nagging frustration that this was not how it was supposed to go. The moment I found out I was pregnant, I became obsessed with my unborn child's well-being and my untapped potential to be the perfect first-time mother. I became a neurotic nester, cross-referencing consumer reports on cribs, high chairs, and car seats. I read books like Bringing Up Bebe to understand the laissez-faire parenting methods of French mothers. <laughs> My husband and I even created a spreadsheet of possible baby names organized by legal name, nickname, origin, meaning, and popularity ranking in the Social Security database. <laughs> but as we pulled into the hospital parking lot, it hit me that while I was so focused on doing things the right way, I had never considered the idea that my daughter might want to do things her own way. She was going to be a Taurus after all. <laughs> then came the another realization. Being slightly unprepared had been slightly on purpose. It was my superstitious way of preparing for the worst. I had wanted to have a baby for so long that when it finally happened, it seemed too good to be true, too built up to not be disappointing, or worse, devastating. So while I could throw myself into the trivial details like what changing table to get and what color scheme to decorate her nursery in, I grappled with the more immediate realities. I didn't tell people I was pregnant until it was obvious. I didn't post a single maternity photo until I was literally in labor. And I didn't pack a hospital bag ahead of time because I didn't want the universe to see me get my hopes up. So now, instead of having my hair washed and my makeup set for the postpartum photo shoot, which is apparently an unspoken requirement among millennial mothers, thanks influencers, I was instead checking into the hospital in my nightgown, holding a duffel bag of what I hoped were essentials, apologizing to the nurse because she would have to page the OBGYN at three o'clock in the morning. Honey, she said as she hooked me up to the monitors, do you know how much these doctors make? He's fine. <laughs> and with that, I let go. Okay, fine, she gave me some drugs. <clears throat> Four hours later, I walked into the operating room. Yeah, that's right. I walked. Hospital gown on, ass flapping in the wind, because it's 2019 and our healthcare system is a joke. <laughs> At this point in my pregnancy, my belly was protruding so far that it took an extra nurse to help me bend over properly so the anesthesiologist could stick the epidural needle in my spine. Three times is the charm, by the way. <laughs> yeah. A few minutes later, they brought my husband into the OR, and 10 minutes after that, they brought our daughter into the world. She came out screaming and ready. Her face was swollen like a prize fighter. Her nails were sharp and pointed like she was planning to shank her way out of the womb. And she had the jet black body hair of a middle-aged Greek man selling falafel on the street. She was perfect. <laughs> I, on the other hand, not so perfect. 
The moment she was out of my body, I began shaking uncontrollably. Then the nausea hit and the dry heaving started. As the anesthesiologist gave me drugs to quell my tiny exorcism, my husband sprung into action and gave our daughter the immediate skin-to-skin -skin contact we had planned on. I'll admit, I'm still a little sad that I wasn't the first one to hold her. But not nearly as sad as I am when I have to explain to people that the hairy nipple in the background of that photo is not mine. The days that followed were a blur of visitors and nurses offering assistance and advice and a little bit of attitude about the name we chose. Wilhelmina? Yeah, Grandma, but you can call her Billy if you want. What were the other names that you were considering? <laughs> Lucia and Esmeralda. Billy's nice. <laughs> Two days later, we were discharged. As we waved goodbye to the nurse who had escort us, escorted us out, my husband whispered to me in a panic, I can't believe they're going to just let us take this baby. <laughs> well, it's our baby, I said as I gingerly got into the back seat. Yeah, he said, starting the car, but we don't know what we're doing. It's not like there's going to be a nurse down the hall if something goes wrong. I paused and looked at our daughter, who was already asleep in her car seat, blissfully unaware of the fact that her parents were well-intentioned rookies. I guess we'll figure it out. raining the night my mother left our family. The cab waited outside the front door while she collected her luggage. I remember there was a big, hard, light blue suitcase and a smaller, rectangular, matching cosmetic case. My father was in their bedroom, and he didn't come out. We kids were pleading, don't go, Mommy, please don't go. My mother said, I have to go. We watched from the living room window and cried as my mother got into the cab in the pouring rain and drove away. At eight years old, I was the oldest of four children. My younger sister was five and a half. One brother was three, and my other brother was an infant in diapers. After that day, my father put me in charge. He said, there's no mother in the house now, so you have to help me with the kids. My father quoted what Abraham Lincoln had said after suffering a loss. I'm too hurt to laugh, too old to cry. But I saw my father was not too old to cry. As a Korean family, it was unheard of for the mommy not to be there. One day, a fuller brush man came to the door to sell his wares. 
When he asked me if my mommy was home, I was embarrassed and wanted him to go away. I told him, she's no longer with us. I knew exactly what I was saying and what that implied, but I wasn't lying. It did the trick and the man quickly disappeared. We had a series of babysitter housekeepers who were home while my father was at work. My little sister could use the toilet, but she didn't know how to wipe herself. She also didn't want the babysitter to see her bottom. Sometimes I'd come home from school and the babysitter would say, your sister's waiting for you. I would open the door to the bathroom and there she was swinging her legs and singing to herself, waiting patiently for me to come and help her finish the task. In fact, I did double potty duty. I changed my baby brother's cloth diapers, pins, plastic overpants, and all. He was a good little baby. My sister, my other little brother, and I would take a Mr. Bubble Bath together when we were young. I would shake the white powder, from the bubblegum-colored pink box. I would run the water to just the right height and temperature. One day, we were out of Mr. Bubble, so I improvised. My father came into the bathroom and saw the three of us sitting in a suds-filled tub. Where did you get the bubble bath from, he asked me. There's no Mr. Bubble. I used a scoop of Tide, I said. <laughs> No father could have lifted three kids out of laundry detergent faster. <laughs> I recall my childhood as being pretty normal, whatever that means. We four kids had each other, and my father was consistent. He was home for dinner every night. <clears throat> we played with Barbies and Legos and Tinker Toys and Etch-a-Sketch. We lived in Northern California, and went to Yosemite National Park. We built forts and rode skateboards. We wore pajamas in the car when my dad took us to the drive-in movies and when he drove us around the neighborhood on Christmas Eve so we could see all the lights and decorations. My sister drew a picture of the milkman and he gave her a free bottle of chocolate milk. We went out for McDonald's and ice cream for a treat. Come on, kids, take my hand, I would say, before crossing the street together. My father said it was like watching a mama duck with her ducklings. On Saturdays and Sundays, my mother had visiting rights. She would take the two girls to her place one day during the day, the two boys the other day. My mom gave us girls a weekly allowance, and we each got one of her hand-me-down handbags. My sister always bought Barbie outfits with her, out, with her allowance. I saved mine in my purse. We got to rummage in my mother's closet and play dress-up with her shoes and clothes. My mom liked to be a little stylish. She had Alberto VO5 hairspray in the bathroom, and I had just seen the ad on TV that claimed, VO5 makes hair do what you want it to. I closed the bathroom door, stood in front of the mirror, and said out loud, I want a flip. <laughs> then I sprayed my hair with VO5. Nothing happened. I must need to use more and say it louder, I thought. I shouted, I want a flip. 
And then I aimed a ton of hairspray around my head. The mirror showed I still had stick-straight hair, unlike the woman in the ad. It was my first realization that all is not as it seems on TV. I was with my mother one summer day. By then, she had a boyfriend. She was wearing an orange and white striped sleeveless shirt. I patted her soft upper arm and said to her, Mommy, your arms are getting flabby. I think you need to come home to Daddy. <laughs> My persuasive talents did not change a thing, but at least I tried. I remember we used to shop with my dad at the nicer stores, and then we didn't. I later learned he had given all his money to the lawyers to fight for full legal custody of his children. In the 1960s, it was uncommon for the father to get the kids. One night, about four years after my parents had split up, my father called us into his bedroom and told us he was marrying his lady friend, Miss Kim, the following week. After the ceremony, we were to call her mom, and we were moving far away. I remember thinking, I didn't get a vote on that. At 8, I had been Cindy in charge, and now at 12, I was being demoted. My dad told us not to tell our mother about the plans during the coming weekend when she would pick us up and we would be with her. Before my mom returned us home to my father's house, I said to her, Mommy, if you want to borrow the money in my purse, you can. I had $15 saved in there, which seemed like a fortune to me. No, I will save it for you to use another time, she said. I knew there wouldn't be a next time, but I kept quiet. After the wedding ceremony, we got on a plane the next day and we relocated to Missouri. My father had gotten a new job and had bought a new home in Baldwin, a West County suburb of St. Louis. The following weekend in California, my mother came to pick us up only to find a for sale sign at the house we had left behind. She called her lawyer who contacted my father's lawyer. Through his attorney, my father asked her, please don't try to find us. I have remarried and we are starting a new life. We want to be happy. Please let us have this. It was a little like kidnapping, but it was 1969 and my father had full custody. My mother let go. Meanwhile, in our new life, I was secretly saving up 50 cents a week for a $63 one-way Greyhound bus ticket back to California to be with my real mommy. I did not exactly know how to find her, but that didn't matter. I did not like having to answer to Miss Kim, I mean mom. Somewhere in the 126 weeks it would have taken me to raise the full bus fare, I made my peace and we were a family. Two years later, I had a new baby sister. I took her out for trick-or-treat when she, she was three. I dote on her still. One day, as an adult in my 20s in New York, I went on a first date with a nice young man who took me to dinner and then to see a movie 
Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> Little did I know it was a film about the breakup of a family. Dustin Hoffman played the father who learns to balance work with raising his young son after the mother, played by Meryl Streep, walks out on her husband and child. Later, there's a heartbreaking custody battle. By the end of the film, I was inconsolable, bawling my eyes out. I was sure I would never see my date again after that soggy emotional display. But I did. Sometimes it's okay to be a complete mess and you don't always have to be Cindy in charge. That was Cindy Lee. And this is Rebecca Bags with a homeschool assignment gone wrong in Passover. My mother is equally parts wildly creative and conservative Christian. A fiercely loving and deeply compassionate woman who just happens to see the world in black and white. No gray. Gray is for white people and godless heathens. She grew up the oldest daughter of five children in a dysfunctional Mexican Catholic household. But from a young age, my mother was always a quiet rebel. She had dropped out of cheerleading in high school to become a theater kid and went on to major in set design in college. I guess she was always into hands-on learning experiences and origin stories too. As her eldest homeschooled kid and perpetual pupil, my education was chock full of them, like the time she had us dissect flowers we collected in the woods behind our house and make detailed sketches of their reproductive parts for biology, or when she had me plan, cook, and host a full-out kosher Passover meal for our Old Testament biblical studies class. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was just another one of her lessons. Now. Don't get me wrong, I was not raised a Jewish. I grew up in a, we screen all the lyrics to every CD you will ever own for anything mildly inappropriate, P.S. do you want a promise ring, kind of Christian family. <clears throat> but there were clues to my mother's growing fascination with Judaism, which for context she sees as the root of all Christian faith, okay? Take the 14 karat gold Star of David necklace that she and my father had given me the year before on my 15th birthday, a true sign of the spiritual union between God and us, they said. Or the ancient family portrait of a stocky, somber-looking, distant uncle that hung on the wall in the dining room. He was dressed as a Catholic priest, but my mother said he was actually a converso, a Jew who fled to Mexico from Spain in the 17th century because his family had been forced into Catholicism, but were still practicing crypto-Judaism in secret. I don't know. <laughs> 
all of that just fell into the background for me. When you're a homeschooled 16-year-old girl with zero social life and a huge obsession with Julia Child and Martha Stewart, cooking up a Passover feast and throwing a carefully choreographed 15-step dinner party through, full of new sights and smells and sounds sounded like a thrilling challenge. So I picked up my copy of the New York Times Cooking for Passover from the Barnes & Noble and got to work. With the help of Yahoo and the World Wide Web, I found a messianic Jewish version of the Haggadah, which is a Jews for Jesus spin on the text recited at Passover Seder. We even got a secondhand Seder plate at the Goodwill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, when I read about the ceremonial wine that's a part of Passover dinner, I got pretty excited. Being a mere five years away from legal drinking age, I convinced my mother that I should definitely get to partake. After all, Jesus did turn water into wine. It can't be all that bad. I spent weeks carefully planning it all out from seating arrangements and table settings down to the, the timing of the day of cooking schedule so I could have everything out at just the right time. As for the guest list, it was made up entirely of my immediate family, my mom, my dad, my three siblings, my grandparents, Arana and Tata, and my most favorite aunt, Tia Ivan. At last, the night for our Passover Seder finally arrived, and it was so exciting. I'd spent all day in the kitchen braising lamb with rosemary and wine, making matzo from scratch, chopping the nuts, dicing the apples, carefully arranging the shank bone with the bitter herbs on the Seder plates. I took it seriously. When everyone took their place at the candlelit dinner table that evening, just as golden hour began, the most perfect natural light settled around the room, right out of a magazine, I swear. Martha would have been proud, okay? Now, I'm not sure what the food actually tasted like because I was too busy tending to Passover things and dinner things that I didn't actually eat any food, but I did get myself a generous glass of wine and that first sip felt so grown up and so elegant. It was all off to a fine start. That is until my tia Yvonne abruptly stood up before we were even halfway through and announced that she would have to leave early. I mean, I get it, it's a three hour ordeal before you get your first bite of matzo soup, but didn't she know how important it was for her to stay? Didn't she care how much work went into planning everything? After she left, my tata decided that it was late and he would just go to bed early. And then my younger sibling started squabbling over who would get the Ivan's portion of dessert. It was a mess. The night had lost a bit of magic that it could never get back. And as dinner went on, I sat there sullen, lost my entire appetite. But that Manischewitz Concord grape goodness went down so smooth. <laughs> In my mother's delight and apparent devotion, she must not have noticed that the one glass of wine I was supposed to spread over the four symbolic cups had turned into a literal four cups of wine. <laughs> I don't really remember what happened next, but boy, I must have been lit. <laughs> I'm told that I ended up bawling tears of self-pity and disappointment before my parents realized that I was in fact intoxicated and wheeled me off to bed. I woke up dazed and disheveled and still fully dressed. No one ever said a word about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. 
For my mother, that Passover was really just the beginning of a transformation of faith and identity. As the years went on, her relationship with Messianic Judaism became increasingly more serious. Bible devotionals were replaced with Parshas. Jesus became Yeshua. They left their church and joined a synagogue of fellow Jews for Jesus. And finally, one Christmas, the Christmas I was going through a divorce, mind you, she and my father broke the news that they wouldn't be celebrating anymore. Our once loved family holiday was too pagan now, but I was welcome to join them for Hanukkah. The whole thing felt confusing and embarrassing to me. At times, it even seemed like cultural misappropriation, something I did not discuss outside of the family, and I outright hid from my Jewish friends. I dismissed it as another manifestation of my mother's crazy, obsessive tendencies. Sometimes, it seemed to me that real life wasn't good enough for my mom. It always had to be a little more extreme, a little more fringe, a little more unusual. We could never just blend in. And I swear I could hear my mom fake a Yiddish accent sometimes after watching Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> yeah, a part of me wished that whatever it was that drove my mom to be this way would just pass over me like the spirit of death passed over the blood-washed doorways of the Hebrews in Egypt. These days, my mother is more devout in her practice of Messianic Judaism than ever. And there's a lot about her and her expression of faith that I still don't understand. A couple months ago, she was preparing to give a family history presentation at her giant family reunion in Tucson, the Nunez family reunion. It would be held at the good old Knights of Columbus Hall. There would be a rosary service and a mariachi band. It doesn't get more Mexican Catholic than that, okay? My mother spent weeks researching her presentation. It consumed her. She pestered me incessantly about making the slide deck for her, which I ultimately did with great you know, reluctance and almost disdain. It became her mission to tell her family's true story. Not the Opata Indian and Azteca side of the story. No, 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 no. The family genealogy from Portugal and Spain, the family genealogy with the closest ties to being Sephardic Jews. Her hypothesis about her ancestry seemed to me to be delicately strung together on a few fuzzy facts. I wanted to tell her how silly it all seemed, but I bit my tongue. Instead, I encouraged my mother to tread lightly there as it might not go over well if she dwelled too long on ancient genealogy. She agreed. When the night of the family reunion came, I'll admit it, I begrudgingly made the drive to Tucson. I remember sitting in that night's of Columbus Hall and seeing my mother walk through the door. The first thing I noticed was that she looked absolutely stunning that night. And when it came time for her to give her presentation, she took the microphone and she spoke confidently into it. My mother, in all her fire and fortitude, began to tell her family's story. And she almost made it through all the slides I'd put together without any diversions. And then she went rogue. I watched as my mother proceeded to tell 150 of her closest Catholic relatives about their secret Jewish origins and long lost faith. <laughs> and then something happened, something I didn't expect at all. Instead of being offended and thinking my mother was crazy, they were all quite fascinated and interested in what she had to say. Her speaking style was so captivating and entertaining too, it took me by surprise. Everyone applauded all the effort and hard work that she had put into the presentation. 
And I realized it was just like those pa that Passover dinner from all those years ago when I had gotten so caught up in the expectation of what it should be that I let it get in the way of experiencing the beauty of what it was. I do that same thing with a lot of things. I just never realized that I had done that same thing to my mother. In that moment, I saw her not as the eccentric weirdo mom that I had painted her to be, but as the passionate and wildly charming woman that she is. That was Rebecca Beggs. And as we draw near the end, Michael Palladino draws something slightly over his head in Support Your Teeth. When I was six years old, my mom helped do something for me that ultimately turned out to be both the driving force for everything I do and the bane of my existence. I was a first grader in North Jersey, 1991. After all these years, all I can really remember about my school was that it was old, damp, and water damaged. And for some bizarre reason, the teachers also fit that description. <laughs> the youngest one there had to be in her late 50s, and each and every one of them looked like beige leather jackets that had been left out in the front yard after a storm. <laughs> my teacher, Mrs. Lelling, was one of the first people I remember disliking a great deal. She looked like a lesser B. Arthur, a B minus Arthur at best. Her motor oil color dye job was so blatant that it couldn't even fool us kids. We knew that the, that the human body couldn't produce that kind of color on its own. If you didn't complete your homework, the class would grind to a screeching halt so she could make an example out of you in front of your peers, as if she were a North Korean army lieutenant who just found Western literature in a soldier's living quarters. If there was one thing this woman taught me, it was how to tune people out. I learned about a couple months into the school year that if I just look out the window and let my imagination go nuts, she wasn't my problem anymore. <laughs> there were only two things that she unnecessarily shouted that did catch my attention. The first time was when she told us that the, lessons plan, that the lesson plans would be put on hold for a day so we could all watch The Land Before Time on VHS. And the other was when she announced that the school was having a dental hygiene-themed art contest. <laughs> when my mom picked me up from the bus stop and asked how the day went, I told her about this art contest thing. Oh, that's perfect for you. You love drawing. I didn't see what drawing had to do with it. That was just the thing I did on the side, between school and sleep. She explained to me that an art contest is basically who can draw the best picture. This blew my mind. I had no idea that there was a competitive aspect to this kind of thing. <laughs> you mean to tell me that all those crayon sketches of Slimer on my closet floor could be entered into these art contests you speak of? Why wasn't this brought to my attention earlier? <laughs> Here I was thinking that the 32-count Crayola box I got for my birthday was purely meant for hobbyists. I had no idea that it could be my ticket out of that mold-ridden dump of a school. Kiss my ass and go to hell, Mrs. Lelling. I'm, ta I'm taking my Oscar the Grouch portraits through the Holland Tunnel and into the East Village so I can fill the void that Jean-Michel Basquiat left when he overdosed three years prior. She explained to me that whatever I drew had to be about keeping your teeth clean. 
My usual art subjects weren't going to cut it this time. I had parameters to work within. Like any kid that age, all we knew about dental hygiene was that toothpaste was good and sugar was bad. This turned me off to the whole thing. You want me to use my artistic talent for your own agenda? You want me to put a limit on my genius just so you can tell a building full of bored children to cool it with the candy? I told my mom that I had no idea what to do with all that, and maybe this whole thing wasn't for me. Of course it is, she said. You can win this, and I can help you. All right, I'll take that bet. What have you got? What's our plan for this dental, theme, dental hygiene-themed art project? Three words. Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. <laughs> Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait was big news at the time, and for a nation that was still ashamed of itself for the whole Vietnam thing, this was a golden opportunity for us to show the world that our big red, white, and blue dick was still the biggest one in the global <laughs> locker room. Put your shorts on, Soviet Union. You're embarrassing yourself. Her vision was simple. Anthropomorphic teeth and desert camo fighting for our dental freedom. This was an odd concept coming from her. After all, I was forbidden from watching G.I. Joe or anything else that even remotely suggested that boys should aspire to be men who, who use guns to kill bad guys. This was an age in which Rambo had his own Saturday morning cartoon. So you can imagine how hard that crusade must have been for her. Politically speaking, you wouldn't find her at any protests, but she never voted Republican. She thought George H.W. Bush was, Bush was old and out of touch. And she even saw the Gulf War for what it truly was, an obvious oil grab that was meant to benefit us and not the people of Kuwait. We definitely see eye to eye on that one now, but at the time, all I knew was that there were soldiers with guns out in some sandy place far, far away, farther than Pennsylvania even. But this East Coast Democrat wasn't going, was, wasn't going this route for her Uncle Sam. She was doing this for her son, Michael. It was a total low blow on her part, and an admirable one at that. She knew the judges from the New Jersey Public School Fine Arts Council were going to eat this one up. Never mind the fact that no such council exists. This was in the bag, and she knew it. We sat down at the kitchen table with a blank poster board and some markers. I vaguely remember a Paula Abdul music video playing on our kitchen TV. That's neither here nor there. I just wanted to remind you that this was 1991. <laughs> to this day, the thing I admire most about her plan of attack was to have the good sense to portray the enemy of the teeth as giant monsters that look like aliens made of earwax, rather than caricatures of Iraqi servicemen. She was always aware of what would be considered problematic long before problematic was widely considered to be something that should be widely considered. <laughs> the second thing she did that I now see as a total stroke of genius was to make the general of the teeth a molar, as that was the tooth that most resembled General Schwarzkopf's body type. <laughs> at the bottom of the poster, at the bottom of the poster under her direction, I wrote, support your teeth. I turned in this poster the following Monday morning. And after that after and that afternoon, Mrs. Lelling went on about the consequences of insubordination. Then the PA system kicked on and an announcement was made. 
We'd like to take a moment to announce the winner of the Dental Awareness Art Contest, Michael Palladino. Michael, please visit the principal's office after class to collect your prize. The entire class turned and looked at me, shocked, with smiling faces. North Jersey youth can have a real mean streak about them, but this time was different. Good job, Michael, and way to go, sporadically went through the class like popcorn. Even Mrs. Lelling had kind words. After class, I walked through the hall, and some kids from other classes, ones that I don't recall ever meeting, gave me praise as we passed each other. You would think I had just pulled a pair of kindergartners out of a, out of a burning bus that morning. I went to the principal's office to get my prize. Honestly, I have no recollection of what that prize even was. Probably a toothbrush. <laughs> there was only one prize that I treasured from that experience, the prize I got with my mom's help. The prize that came as a double-edged sword that I would carry all my life. The realization that I crave attention and praise from strangers. That was Michael Palladino. Finally, we have Lauren Gilger as she experiences the joy of having a son in It's a Boy. I knew it was a boy before the ultrasound tech checked to see, before she put the picture of his little penis in an envelope for the big reveal. I knew it before my mother put our present in a blue gift bag and said the blue didn't mean a thing, really. It was just the only bag she could find on the way to our shower. I knew it before my five-year-old niece opened the envelope in front of the crowd of friends and family and said, it's a boy, and then burst into tears. She wanted a girl. So did I. <laughs> I have always called myself a feminist. And yes, I realize that being a feminist has nothing to do with having a son. And I realize that men can be feminists too. That's not my point. Hear me out. <laughs> I grew up with a mother who worked a lot and a dad who stayed at home and let my sister and me paint his fingernails. They were nice and big and round, a lot easier to paint than ours. He was great at Chinese checkers, but no good at side ponytails. More side, dad, we would always complain. My mother was and is a powerhouse. She has been in journalism for more than 30 years. She worked her way up from being a farm reporter in St. Cloud, Minnesota, to running one of the top journalism schools in the nation. Stories about her work ethic are legendary. The best one, while she was the bureau chief in St. Tammany Parish, where the Times-Picayune in Louisiana, she dictated a story once while she was in labor with my sister, in between contractions. <laughs> she didn't want to let all those stories, those notes that she had taken at that night's parish council go to waste. Unlike my mother, I have always embraced all things girly, from those side ponytails to the Spice Girls to makeup to Sex in the City to high heels, which I wear to work every day, thank you very much. I like to shop, get dressed up, put on a good face mask, drink rosé. Sometimes I like to put on a good face mask while drinking rosé in a bubble bath, so what? <laughs> but like my mother, I have a deep-rooted belief in women in our power and equality. When I was a sophomore at Xavier, the all-girls Catholic high school here, 
I once goaded my religion teacher, a former nun, into calling me a radical for, for arguing that women should become priests. In college, I chaired the Women's Empowerment Club, performed twice in the vagina monologues, and hoped that our college chapter of the Knights of Columbus would protest us again. I also fell in love with Sister Elizabeth Johnson's class on women in the Bible and every feminine image of God that she had rooted out. In grad school, I got a tattoo of one of them, three soaring birds. I'm not going to show them to you. <laughs> As a journalist, I have championed women's issues and worked to tell their stories. I went to the maternity wards of the Dominican Republic to find out if Haitian immigrants there knew their babies would not get birthright citizenship. I documented the suffering of thousands of women implanted with a medical device meant to prevent pregnancy that also sometimes happened to result in a 25-year-old woman needing a hysterectomy. I married a musician who has no qualms about the fact that I am the breadwinner in our family. When we were dating, I told him how much money I made. Instead of being threatened, I think he was relieved. <laughs> he cheers me on, pushes me to achieve, and makes me lunch to bring to work every day. I have always looked at the world with a kind of defiance. I dare you to underestimate me because I'm blonde and five feet tall. I dare you to talk sports and negotiate your salaries in the men's room. I dare you to interrupt me in a meeting or take credit for my ideas. I dare you. I realize I sound like Elle Woods, but I was never in a sorority. So when we decided to have a baby two years ago, I pictured a girl. I assumed it would be a girl. It only made sense. I would have a little girl who I could dress up, who I could watch musicals with, who I could teach to be strong in the face of sexism. A girl who would achieve and excel and stand up for herself and for other women. I would have a baby girl and buy her one of those onesies that says the future is female. <laughs> I would sign her up for girls rock camp and let her run wild and play in the dirt and teach her that she can be whatever she wants to be. But instead, I had a boy. <laughs> a beautiful blonde boy with chubby cheeks and bright blue eyes who has so much love in his heart and no idea his mother wanted a girl. <laughs> so now that there was a baby boy with a tiny penis growing in my belly, <laughs> I had to wonder what about the boys? Conventional wisdom right now says American men are in crisis. Boys are more likely than girls to get in fights. They're more likely to smoke, to die young, to be victims of violence. They don't do as well in school, and they're less likely to go to college. When there is yet another devastating mass shooting in this country, they are the ones pulling the triggers. We read about men using their power to put women down, to hold them back to demean them, and even assault them. We read that men are clinging to privilege with their ever sweatier hands. But then I look at my boy. Nathaniel is so beautiful. He has round eyes and soft skin, and his cheeks turn the most perfect shade of pink when he's been running around in the sun. And his hair, this kid has hair that I would kill for. It's smooth and wavy at once, Golden blonde and already at one and a half runs past his shoulders. We keep it in a baby man bun most of the time that makes almost everyone over a certain age uncomfortable with his baby gender bendiness. 
Nathaniel is strong and confident and stubborn and gutsy and incredibly sweet. He fights hard for what he wants, like up, <laughs> and often wants nothing more than to be held, probably while dancing to Barbara Ann on loop. When my mother was pregnant with my older brother, her first child in 1980, she said she was determined to raise him to be a feminist. She bought him gender neutral toys, including an anatomically correct male doll. <laughs> he was not interested. <laughs> when she refused to buy him a toy gun, he came up with an ingenious alternative. He would simply eat his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches into the shape of a gun and point it at someone and make pew, pew, pew noises. <laughs> And he didn't become an angry misogynist. He became a priest. That's not an analogy. He is actually a Jesuit priest and <laughs> an academic at the New School who texted me the other night to tell me he cried three times when he went to see My Fair Lady on Broadway. <clears throat> he is a man not unlike my father, who often used his gentle giant hands to pin up my dress-up prairie skirt so you could see the ruffly bloomers underneath. No complaints. And he is a man not unlike my husband, now also a stay-at-home dad, whom I have seen cry exactly three times, but who spends his very little free time writing songs about love that make me cry. Nathaniel has two favorite things in the world right now. One is a tiny plastic Buzz Lightyear figurine <laughs> that is constantly clutched in his left fist. The other is the garbage truck that stops at our house on Friday mornings. He'll stand outside and wait for an hour for that garbage truck if he has to. I know what you're thinking. He's such a boy. People are always saying that when they see him playing with a truck or kicking a soccer ball. Maybe it makes them feel less uncomfortable about his long, luxurious, curly hair. When they say that, I think back to my baby shower and my niece's tears and that sinking feeling in my stomach. It's a boy, everyone cheered. All I could think was, what in the world am I going to do with a boy? Now all I can think is, what would the world do without him? That was Lauren Gilger, and that's it for this episode of the Barflies podcast. Special thanks to my co-curator, Amy Silverman, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Colexico for our theme music. For upcoming shows and workshops, visit barflies.org. <laughs>